Ruiz. Back with Gabe, DJ Godzilla Gonzalez again. Uh, Going to uh, pick up where we left off, talking about you hooking up with uh, George and P Funk and getting rolling right. and ramping up for P Funk All Stars. What what happened, man? Oh man, well that point in my life uh, was deep. I I just graduated high school, and uh, like I said previous, I t- turned on a scholarship to Berkeley. And um, I was already hanging around P-Funk, so, and I kind of left the gospel scene, and uh, I figured, you know, I just started going with the funk after that first show I did with them in 88. Uh, I did a few sessions a lot, and uh, I would show up uh, around town. Whenever they would come to town, you know, I was like a roadie or helping out or driving somebody around. I think everybody's initiation in the band kind of works out like that. It took a while for me to get in the band because, like I said, my first show was 88. I don't think I officially went on tour and went out with the band until um, it was uh, 1995, uh, February 18th, day after my 25th birthday. So I still remember that. But... um. I kind of got in, like, I was around them, like, a lot, and uh, just doing a lot of studio stuff, mainly, and working with uh, Blackbird. Um, He called me, we did a few sessions together, and he kind of knew me, and um, just for hanging around a little bit, and um, we ended up going into the disc recording studio here in Detroit, and um, we laid down. Uh, it was a couple songs. I don't know. They were his originals. They were some, some badass, badass uh, material. But I don't know whatever happened. It got lost in the shuffle of things. But uh, so moving forward a year later, that probably was like 92 or 93. And then around 94, I got a call one day. My mom told me uh, when I came home from work that, uh, hey, you got to call somebody Blackbird or Blackburn or she didn't know and he had called and left a message saying he wanted me to do this record with him. And she told me. And um, so uh, I called and uh, showed up at the studio. And um, he was kind of working on it already, which was the first origins of Dog Star or Fly On. And uh, Lodge came at some point. And uh, the next thing I know, we kind of he showed it to us a little bit, the groove, and uh, I just jumped off into it. And um, it's a monumental song. I mean, for me to be, I was 24 at the time, and for that to be like, P-Funk still plays that song open with it. So I think for me to be an original musician on that song is an honor, and, and to know that that song actually became a big 
anthem for them years later after all the other rock themes they've had, you know. Uh, you know, it's an honor. I mean, people like, yep, that's it, man. Dope Dogs, my first uh, first uh, P-Funk session. Well, the first released P-Funk session, let's say that. And um, like I said, from there, um, it just blew up. You know, people like uh, EU even covered it. And it's funny because I, I've met Juju and known him and uh, Sugar Bear and all them. And, and that's an honor because when I was laying the song down, uh, in terms of my thinking, like I try to emulate, you know, because I'm a producer at heart. So when I come in and lay a track for you or somebody, uh, I try to use my producer skills. It's not really about me. I try to provide what I think the fight, the best feel would be. So I go into my file of drummers or, and because I'm that kind of drummer, I could think like, uh, let's see, let me go into my Steve Gad thing or let me go into my, you know, Terry Bozio, whatever the, whatever the fuck I'm feeling. Like if I hear the song, you know, I can emulate those drum styles, but still be original and put my own twist on it. So what happened was I tried to emulate Buddy Miles with a sloppy open hi-hat. And uh, one of the drummers I was with, P-Funk, already, Tony Thomas, who was a go-go drummer that worked with Chuck Brown a lot as well. So what you're hearing is a little mixture of go-go with a Buddy Miles edge on it. So that, that was what I did for Dogstar. And the rest is history. You know. Are you on any other cuts on that album? Uh, not on that album, no. Yeah. Um, there was actually a P-Funk uh, tribute to Jimi Hendrix which featured, I think, that's what the project was at first. I think George just took that song and put it on that, that compilation you have there, but the original recording was for uh, the P-Funk Tributes to Jimi Hendrix, which was released on P-Vine. And um, there's an alternate song we did called Pleasure with the Dirt Devil, which I came up with that that title. Was from It was a joke about one of the other members coming in the studio, smoking up all the weed. And I just remember being like, damn, you know, making a, a joke about it and Blackbird was like, that's it. You know, I'm like, what's it? And he's like, the name. I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, so anyway, but, uh, they should but use Bernie, that. To, uh, they should use that to advertise the vacuum cleaners. <laughs> I know. Right. On another note, I wanted to say, uh, it just so happens while we were upstairs recording dog star, um, Bernie happened to be downstairs negotiating some business. I guess they were still dealing with that whole, uh, family series thing they were doing. And Bernie happened to be there and I guess was stealing or signing some contracts or doing something. And I remember we were all like, wow, you know, hey, you know, Blackbird was out of me. Like, we had to get him on it. So that's Bernie actually playing keyboards on, on Dogstar as well. People don't know that. Tell me about uh, some of those, you know, P-Funk characters. You know, you were rubbing shoulders with them and watching them do their thing on and off the the microphone uh what were some of these now legendary characters like you know what can you say about a bernie or a george or a gary and a couple of the others oh man uh well all those you named are the three pillars for me um well bootsy is important because um when i was a kid you know as i mentioned earlier he gave me uh the number of things incorporated which opened my whole everything. And so that was kind of my door into it. But um, I remember from working with them that around that time, 88, when George's son was staying with me, George Jr. 
uh, Gary Scheider came by my house, and that's when I had the four track, and you know they loved that. Anybody who had something to record on, because that was a big deal back then. And I had a really a high tech one. It was the high speed rack mount one, so it wasn't the little flat ported one. So um, they would all come to my house and record, basically, and you know use me for sessions, which was cool because hey, it was it was there, and I learned a lot because of them. Um, you know, Gary coming to my house, I learned how to. He showed me how to play a little guitar and some riffs and, um, you know, just feel. Uh, Clip taught me how to record some beats, and he would lay a lot of stuff on my four-track. Uh, uh, it would come to be uh, amp as well, and um, all of them, even Eddie Hazel. Uh, I got a few things I got a chance to do with him and see him up close around there. But that's the thing. Uh, their craft, it projected on me in, in big ways. Um because I was, like I said, P-Funk is like a university. Uh, you really can learn a lot being around them if you if you open your mind and realize that before you it's already gone. Because, I mean, I didn't realize a lot of the things I wish I had taken, taken advantage of having Eddie at my house and Gary more than, when, you know, now that they're gone, you know, you don't realize that, you know. But, um, but no, I learned a lot from him. Uh, George, uh, that was deep. Um, I was just friends with George. I used to pick him up, drive him around, uh, you know, bring him goodies every now and then, mushrooms, you know, whatever, anything to keep his time. I would just sit in the room and he would draw pictures and we would talk all night. Uh, you know, I missed them days. It definitely changed, you know, once I became uh, an employee of the band. And, and I get that because you know, he couldn't really show me any favoritism. And because, uh, like I said, I would just hang with him. And I remember he would put everybody out the room in the studio and have me listen to mixes with him just to get my opinion on what I thought of certain songs that they were working on, which is I thought was, you know, you know, he, he holds me in pretty high regard in some areas. And that's cool. Um, I know when he first heard me play drums, it was kind of shocked him because I remember him looking at coming to my basement. He kind of looked, made this weird face. and. I was, I think we were playing, uh, why should I dog you out? And, um, I could, like I said, emulate drum machines and stuff like that. And I was kind of playing the beat, like at programmed it. And because I was there when he programmed it. So it was like a little swing thing. And when their secret was, you know, they would quantize the drum machine to 24, which would give it that, you know, Teddy Riley swing beat kind of, kind of feel, you know, which. They were doing that before Teddy Riley, but of course Teddy Riley coined it. But you know what I'm saying. So, <laughs> yep. What do you think? Uh, ask everyone from the camp. You know this question. What do you think is uh, George's genius? What's the essence of of George Clinton's genius? Do you think? Oh, uh, well, he has the ability to see things that we don't. Uh, I've learned that for real. Like a lot of things. Uh, you know. He's clever, you know, he's very smart. Um, and I, a lot of that rubbed off on me, like how I can remember so many crazy things and I don't even know how. And people are like, I didn't remember all this stuff. And I don't know. But it's like, I know he does and, and he always kind of influenced me. He was always kind of somewhat like a father figure or uncle and, you know, somebody I looked up to, um, you know, at some things, you know, but... Um, He's uh he's clever at knowing how to bring a lot of people together. That's completely all different 
whatever. You know what I'm saying? It don't matter what you went to. For some reason, he know how to get the funk out of you and capture it. And that's a gift. I mean, uh, a lot of producers can't really do that. I think most people are so odd that they're with George Clinton. So you want to give him your best funk and performance because you know you're with him. And, and as well as with the others, like for me, like, man, I played every night. Sometimes like it was my last night on because shit, you know, being out there and the way I was living in, you know, I never knew if it was, you know, so, uh, I mean, and that's real. I, like, I remember, um, Dennis coming to see me for the first time at, uh, uh, somewhere in DC, the, the um, Capitol, I don't remember, it was somewhere, Constitutorium Hall or somewhere, and, um, I used to wear the fencing mask. Uh, a lot of people remember me wearing that. And that was the thing. I would always try to, because I grew up on a Funkadelic, I would always try to add that. Like, nobody had to tell me I was just a Funkadelic even before I even met them. So, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was just me. But I would just wanted to apply that because, you know, I was got in the band kind of, it was around the 90s, and they started staring away from that, that whole, you know, it became more of a happier different looking band you know i'm more with the being a fan i'm more from the you know the dark era with you know mike hampton with the cloak on and you know all the scary looking drawers with the freaked out makeup and shit you know when he got into wearing the you know the uh smurf uh sheets and stuff i was just like okay <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's like and i get it because it was a whole definitely and that was one thing i noticed too it was a definitely a shift in the crowd, but um, like I said again, getting back to um, with um, Dennis coming to see me that night, uh, I didn't know he was coming to the show, and um, uh, I just remember every time I would do something, I think we were playing Maggot Brain, and I would hear somebody yell something behind my back. It was so like intense, I could feel the pressure like against my body. Like when they were yelling, I'm like, man, who the hell is that? You know, I had the fancy mask, so my vision was pretty. And I know George used to hate when I wore it, but he had this thing about looking at him. And my thing was, all right, I'm gonna look at you, but I'm not gonna let you see me looking at you. So that's what my mind was. That's why I used to wear all that shit. So, um, and um, I couldn't see really other than, you know, right at the drum set, because of fancy mask, I mean, you can see, but that screen is, you know, it makes things hazy when it's lights and fog and all that stuff. So. Uh, you, know, we, you know, I kill it and get off the drums and I turn around and take the thing off and it's, you know, uh, Dennis and he's like, hey man, you mind if I sit in? I'm like, I'm like, oh no, no, not at all. <laughs> Whoa. So, you know, he sat in, I think it was standing on the verge he played. He hadn't played with them in years. Um, and that was his first time, I guess, coming back to sit in uh, since then. And, uh, you know, I gained a lot of respect. I mean, in my eyes, it was always a little bit of kind of weird segregation in, even in P-Funk, believe it or not. Well, I mean, just to say it was like, as big as a band and everybody was one, I mean, it was a click. I mean, like, you had the Baltimore guys, which they brought in a lot of the drummers before I came in. I think I broke that mold. Frankie was there right before I came in and ended up coming back while I was there. And I learned a lot from Frankie as well. I learned a lot from all the P-Funk drummers, really. I studied Tiki, like, you know, tremendously, and most people think my style is is mostly like Tiki's, you know, more than anybody else's. But, but uh, I learned from all of them, really. And um, 
you know, it was, it was just, you learn a lot and it, it was a hell of a job I, to try to keep the same tempo because everybody in that band, they all had different tempos. That shit was weird to me as well. You know, Gary and George, they got a way slower tempo. The horn players, they somewhere else. And you got to know how to some kind of way put that shit right where everybody's happy and comfortable. And that's deep because people think it's simple. A lot of drummers just think, oh, I'm going to come in and kill it. I'm going to try to be Dennis. And no, it don't work like that. As a matter of fact, by the time I got there, they wanted exactly the opposite. Because a lot of the other drummers that tried to come in playing like Dennis, and that's where they faltered. So, um, and I know George just wanted it simple because back at the time, hip hop was, you know, prevalent. And, you know, George wanted it that hip hop feel. And, you know, I would give it that. And then in the middle of a set, he would let us go crazy and do our Funky Doug thing. And we would rock out, you know, uh, me, Bird, Elijah, Michael. I mean, there was like a whole set like that. Like we would do the whole set and George would give us 15, 20 minutes and he would leave the stage and we would just go apeshit. <laughs> did, did, uh, did you have crossover with Danny or did he come after you? Danny got there right after I left. I left, uh, I think November twenty, November twenty sixth, nineteen ninety six. Um, it was right after Thanksgiving. Yep. Why did you not continue on? Well, um, I was having some issues with management at the time. Uh, I don't want to mention no names, but it was uncomfortable. I mean, I really loved my job. I loved P-Funk. You know, I, I was young. I did a lot of dumbass shit, you know, as most of us did in the band. But, um, you know, I did my job. I mean, I made an impact. Like I said, uh, Skeet loved playing with me and a lot of people were, uh, when I quit. Um, it kind of... It was like, it seemed like nobody really wanted to hear me. Like, you know, I just remember one show in L.A. Rick James came to the show. He had just gotten out of jail. And uh, it was a company called Monolith that uh, they made drums. And uh, they were made out of graphite or some kind of weird stuff that they used for some NASA material. And uh, you know, I remember the advertisement. They had like an astronaut with this little thing. And I'm thinking, wow, so I would just hunt down these little companies and try to get endorsements with the smaller companies because I knew it wouldn't be as hard, you know, on competitive. So I contacted them and they were all in. I was like, look, I'm touring with P-Funk and we got this mothership uh, anniversary thing and da-da-da-da. You know, and I remember explaining it to George that I got, you know, some people that want to give us an endorsement. I'm, you know, I'm going to get you some drums because we had been playing the same kit he had sitting in the garage at home for two years, and we were just beating the hell out of that kit. And I was seeing, you know, Michael and Gary and everybody with new guitars and Blige and everybody getting new basses and the drums we had at heart. I mean, I was cracking cymbals, and, and it seemed like nobody really cared at first. And I'm thinking, well, damn, how can we get some gear? for the drums because, you know, in a minute, there ain't going to be no more drums. They're going to be fucked up. And this band has to be held up by the drums. It's, it's, it, that's what this is. So anyway, uh, I don't know what happened. For some strange reason that night, George didn't let me play. And the people were there to give me the endorsement. And uh, 
I kind of flipped my wig a little bit. So, so I don't know. I just like, okay, I didn't think too much about it. I was just like, all right, fuck it. So the next night, the same shit happened again. I'm thinking, okay, what is, where is this going? I remember complaining to somebody in the band about it. I don't want to mention who, but somebody I really looked up to. And I was like, man, what's going on, man? And he was like, man, I think George might be just so high, he don't realize you're there. And I'm thinking, man, hell no, that's some, that's not, that's bullshit. You know what I'm saying? How you not going to realize I'm here after being here almost a year? You know what I'm saying? So, and then they may have been right, because I remember one time being pissed off and walking away from the stage and George saw me walking away and he's like, oh, you you going up next. So, you know, I don't know. He, they may have been telling me the truth, but in my mind, it was it was always some kind of conspiracy about the shit, you know, so. So anyway, um, uh, we, we got to Colorado somewhere around there and he let me play more than he usually did, which was strange. Like I played the normal songs I played, which was like, I used to do the whole four hours and I mean, I was happy to see another drummer come because that shit really was wearing me out. I mean, I bet. <laughs> four hours of seeing everybody come and go except for me and my hands would be like this when I would get off the, so I mean, I'm not trying to impress or improve. I mean, you know, show anybody nothing. I don't have nothing to improve. I'm just trying to do my job, but I literally thought, man, what the, what the hell? This is like, so it gave me stamina. I learned stamina. And that was what that gig was about. You have to know how to pace yourself, you know. So it's it's intense. I mean, and, and uh, so uh, from there, I just, you know, uh, he let me play the whole night mostly. It was bizarre. And then I come to find out somebody uh, in the band's wife, I guess, who's George's favorite, her opinions and things. Uh, she was like, hey, you know. You didn't let Gabe play the other night, da 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 da, and, and next thing I know, you know, it took that for him to. So I, I kind of was offended by that. No other thing that was deep was I was still getting paid, even though he didn't uh, let me play those nights. I was still on the payroll, and I was still getting paid for that. Now that really fucked my head up too, and I'm thinking, well, damn, I don't need a babysitter. Like, what's going on for who, real? You know who, what I'm saying? Who played on the ones you you weren't playing? Who, What's ha that? who handled drums on those times when you didn't play? Um, well, Ron Wright was there, and he had been around. And same thing, he started off in the in the merch and driving and you know all that. But I remember one night in Seattle, I got sick on the show, or was it Portland? Yeah, it's Portland. I hate Portland, Oregon. That's the haunting place. You know, that's where Mitch Mitchell passed. Something about Portland. But anyway. I don't like Portland. I've been there with three different bands, three separate occasions, and I've gotten sick every time. So I don't know if it's something in the air. But anyway, just one night in Portland, I was like deathly ill and I'm playing and playing. I would drink a lot of Gatorade to stay hydrated playing with them because I would, you know, sweat everything out because I would be putting in a lot of energy. And um, sometimes uh, in Paris, I know for a fact, the longest show I ever did with them was almost six hours. It was five hours and 48 minutes. As far as I'm concerned, I don't give a damn. That's six hours. You know what I'm saying? And Prince showed up that night, and it just went on another hour, you know. So it was it was deep. I was at Hot Brass in Paris. But I do remember that five hours and 48 minutes because I had a little clock on the side of the stage. And I was thinking, oh, my God, this was deep. But anyway. Did, so did, did Prince come on stage? 
Yeah, yeah, he came on. He had like some white on and just, he didn't stay long, but he was there, you know. Because, you know, management was like on this, you know, don't look at him thing, don't make eye contact with him. And so the guys in the band was like, fuck that, you know, you know, I ain't gonna say who, but, but yeah, so he was there. I mean, you know, he was a P Funk fan, so he was, uh, Paris was a big spot for them. And, um, this was the last show of three nights, so yeah, you can imagine we were burning it up. Were were any of those uh, any particular song in the catalog that was more challenging to do the drumming to than any other? Well, that's the thing where I had the upper hand because of me being a, a avid P Funk fan before I became the drummer. It had a lot of advantage to me because uh, that's one of the things a lot of the rhythm section loved about me was that I knew a lot of that stuff like the record. The only problem is <laughs> Gary and George didn't give a shit about that. And I had to learn that the hard way because I was always like, man, I know this stuff. But I had to realize somebody being the boss and the band leader, what they want versus what you want or think. Because my thing was always been... It's always about the fans first because I'm a fan. And I'm thinking, okay, what do the fans really want? Because I don't want to see my favorite band going on the tubes because I love this band like it's like a kidney or a rib or some shit. It's a part of me, you know what I'm saying? So it meant a lot to do my best. And um, I think I applied that with how uh, 420 came into, into to play because um, we prided ourselves on playing those Funkadelic classics and obscure songs like the records, if you notice. So that's kind of how 420 was born. Actually, <clears throat> after I quit, so it was almost like uh, they decided we're going to have another band with you in it that's going to be separate from P-Funk. So that's yes, the way that junior. came out. Yeah, those are, I don't know what that, that one is, but I mm -hmm. know for sure the live in Spain. This one yeah. is, uh, this one is Trip Fest. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm on all of that. I was in Woodstock. Yeah, that was a, a couple day, uh, three day thing too. Well, what you're saying, I mean, hits home uh, with me, Gabe, because I remember, you know, I went to so many of those P Funk shows. I mean, throughout every decade, but in the '90s, the shows were cool, but they started to get a little bit um, samey, and uh, they weren't, you know, going back and doing a lot of those great tracks. And so when when 420 came out. I mean, for people like me, it was a godsend because to hear these fantastic deep catalog tracks pulled back out and done so authentically, All right. it was awesome, man. Man, look, I have fun doing it because, uh, you know, it was we didn't want to offend George, but this is kind of what we wanted to do. But again, we couldn't because whatever George, when George is on stage, and I, and I understand that completely. You know, it took me a while as a band leader and, and you know, George reads the crowd. That's another one of his geniuses. He can read the crowd and figure out where they at, you know, and because where I'm at, I'm not focused on the crowd, even though it could be, you know, we've done a lot of huge shows, but to me, I never was intimidated. As long as the drum sounded strong and good, I was ready to kick some ass and I didn't give a, you know, I didn't care. So I really didn't focus on the crowd that much. 
you know, um, I focused on the band members' faces and how they were reacting to my plan and, and what was going on, you know, around me. Because that was important. I looked at, like, Mudbone, how he would move and move his tambourine and dance. I would lock in with Mudbone a lot. He was almost like my metronome. He would stand to the to the left of me. It was when George had a little vocal section going across. It would be like uh, Mudbone, Steve Boyd, and whoever else in the middle, depending on what it was or whoever it was. It might be a female or, you know. But uh, I used that a lot. And uh, I, I was blessed to uh my bone and boogie would take time out in between sound checks and things to sell me different uh things on the drums and feels and uh things that i took that special boogie i was really close with uh i mean like he took my pedal one day <laughs> it's a funny story real quick i had uh just got endorsement with access to the pedals you know they made out of some light titanium weird you know so they're real light and fast and I had just gotten this thing, and they're pretty expensive, uh, as little as they look. You know, it's like $600 a pedal or $500 or some shit. And uh, I left in my room and left Boogie in there. I came back. He took the whole damn pedal apart. Like, it was in pieces. Now, I'm sitting there like, man, what the? <laughs> he just took my pedal apart. <clears throat> but I was kind of pissed, but I was like, Okay, where's this going? I'm like, man, I got to play in a couple hours. Which, you know, I'm freaking out in my room. Like, man, I got to, you know, he's like, oh, man, I, I'm trying to show you something. So I'm on my like, how the hell are you going to show me something? And this my shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he actually did. That's how deep Boogie was. He put the shit back together. And as he was putting it together, he showed me things about it. that I don't even know. I, it was like a transmission. Like, literally, like, like in your car. It's a transmission was on the pedal. I had one. I didn't know that. I had to talk to the president of the company to find that out later, but he it had gears so I could shift and put this pedal. It was crazy. But it, so anyway, Boogie helped me discover that. But uh, that's pretty uh tripped out. But uh, I like I said, I learned a lot from all of them. They still my uh teachers and even when with them being gone, like things Gary uh taught me about vocals and recording and, and uh you know, uh, Boogie in the studio as well. And it's just, man, phenomenal, you know? Yeah, wow. Um, so tell me about the genesis of getting an Enemy Squad record done. Uh, well, you know, where it started or how it started. <laughs> Well, it came out in, in 98, but I'm sure you were working on it for a while. Um, well, I'm going to give you a quick history. Our first cassette came out in 1990 called, uh, I can't even remember right now what it's called, but uh, it came out in 1990, actually. It had five songs on it. I'm sorry, 1989. 1990, we released uh 45 uh keep the peace and a song called sticky liquid destruction which was later redid on uh united state of mind album as sticky liquid funk but uh this first version on our 45 um it's a collector's item it's it's some of them are, are blue vinyl which are the rare ones and it's got a little sticker in there and it's pretty cool shit um uh, this little uh group of kids in Detroit was putting out records and 
they were kind of afraid to approach me. They thought I was too famous or big, even at the time, which was deep. And um, I just talked to them, like, hey, man, we can do something. And, and you know, next thing you know, we ended up putting it out. And it ended up being the biggest record they ever sold, So, uh, which was pretty cool. And um, I, I had some personnel changes, and the band kind of split up around then. Uh, we we got the attention of David Geffen and Geffen Records, actually, from a showcase we did. And there was a lot of people that wanted to sign us and give us a major deal earlier on. Uh, it just kind of didn't didn't happen because of the you know, personnel changes. It was one glitch. And then, um, you know, just a lot of things going on at the time. And then I was still kind of dealing with that that pull of, of being pulled into P-Funk and at the same time trying to get my deal uh and i remember meeting uh this guy at a, uh one of the new music seminars in 19 uh 92 maybe and um it was in new york city and i met him at a party it was a party for russell simmons and i had a friend of mine she worked for uh, a big magazine i think it was details magazine or something and uh, she introduced me to him. I don't really want to mention him, but <laughs> he's knowledgeable on funk music. Um, you know, that's one of the things why I think I ended up working with him because when I, I told him, well, I was introduced to him as a funk, a drummer with the funk band and, you know, with ties with, to P-Funk and da-da-da-da. And uh, so we talked for a couple years, actually, and nothing really ever happened. He sent me a contract and it was kind of garbage. And uh, about it's like two years later, uh, well, again, that night at the party, he was saying, um, well, what kind of funk you doing? Is it like New Orleans funk? Is it West Coast funk or, or uh, you know, you know, Boogaloo? He knew his shit. He knew he named about seven different types of funk. So I'm looking at this dude like, oh, I was impressed. So he was big in the hip hop world. Uh, putting uh you know a lot of the early hip-hop stuff out cold crush brothers and stuff like that and um spoonie g and um i was in new york city with p-funk at the time uh working with george somewhere around when we did the mothership reconnection it was summer of 96 and um I kind of like sent him a demo of those songs and I had been working on them since like 92. I started working on a lot of those songs. I recorded uh, quite a few, about three or four of those songs were recorded in like 92 and 93. And uh, as as you know, as time went on, I would generally work on them. Um, so I pretty much Gangster, and I'm gonna say gangster. I gangstered my way into this deal. Like I told her, dude, look, man, I need to get this stuff out. You've been, you know, we've been talking. I mean, what you gonna do? And I had a couple other offers. Uh, I was talking to uh, somebody who had to connect with Bill Laswell's label, but it, I don't know, something just didn't happen. And uh, next thing I know, he sent another contract out, and I have my lawyer uh, look look it over. And uh, next thing you know, we put a record out and um well first i got the advance to uh you know to work on it and i remember showing george and archie when i first got it and uh 
I don't think I don't think they were too happy about it, but I remember telling George, hey man, I got a chance to do my own thing. I'm not leaving the band, but I want to get some of the other guys, you know, some of us some extra work and you know, I'll pay you guys. George is even on the record, you know, um, you know, and uh that's kind of what happened. So and I produced it under my you know, my moniker, the Undisco Kid, because like Prince, I didn't want to be like I'm doing everything. I didn't want to so I started using all these different, you know, monikers and, uh, you know, names and stuff. So, yeah, <laughs> you got the vinyl, <clears throat> man. And I, that's a classic. And I want to say, you know, that cover, I started that with Pedro Bell in his basement. Um, I actually helped him design it. I told him what I wanted. I told him, like, I want a, a chick on the cover. And da, 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 da. I was always in my my thing was always trying to more funk funkadelic and Ohio players covers because I know Ohio players would always had a hot freaky looking naked chicks and well, funkadelic had that too. Yeah. <laughs> so I always wanted to incorporate both of those things since uh, and I want to add Junie called me one day out the blue which was freaky as hell. He's like, hey man, uh, this is Junie and I I really like your record. Um, Enemy Squad, it reminds me of Funkadelic and I'd like to work with you and produce it and I almost dropped the phone and shit because I didn't really know if it was a joke at first. I'm like, man, come on. This is Judy Morrison and it was, you know, he's a real soft-spoken kind of mysterious guy, but uh, he heard the record and loved it, and which floored the shit out of me. Like, even Buckethead um, had a copy of the first demo cassettes I put out. Yeah. And uh, even Buckethead was a fan of it. So that that blew me away. That Buckethead had the cassette that I put out. There were demo cassettes, promos of that album I was actually putting out before the record came out because they were taking so long. And I, those came out in 97, actually. Uh, a few fans and people had those. And I released a few live uh, cassettes as well of us performing live that a few collectors have. I mean, we had a few obscure things, too, that, that's out, you know. You got the uh, Ultra Unit. You got that one? No. Well, it's close. It was one we put out right after that, 99, which was basically... Uh, it's basically Enemy Squad under, like, a uh, different name. It was more Ultra Unit, which is kind of my version of The Roots. It was, like, uh, more user-friendly to the hip-hop crowd because I started back playing a lot more hip-hop again. Uh, Enemy Squad actually had a lot of hip-hop fans. If you heard a lot of the scratching and, and cuts on there, uh, DJ Lin Swan is on there. Uh, he was actually, he got a gold platinum plaque. He did a lot of the cuts on Eminem's uh, first album. So um, I had a lot of legendary people on there. Bill Summers also produced, co-produced a couple of songs with me on there, and I used his drums in New Orleans. I think you'll see his name in the credits, you know. Okay, yeah, he's been on this show. Yeah, um, still doing it. Um, yeah, I tried to make it. Uh, and one other fact about that, I'm gonna just say about that record. As me being a producer, I could have gotten Ray Davis and Mudbone and all of them on it. I kind of declined it at first. I turned it down because I thought to myself, "Man, this record is gonna be just a, a project, and there's no way in hell I'm gonna be able to pull that off live, having Ray Davis's voice or Mudbones, you know." So, 
I just told him, you know, something else would do it. But I remember I was going to get Ray on it before he passed the mud bone. Had agreed to work with me on some of it, but I just, I just thought I would over. I didn't want to overproduce the record, you know. So I just wanted to keep it where it would still be, you know, us as our formula that we had live, you know. So I, I just want to give you full props for it, Gabe. But it's definitely, I think one of the, you know, top funk records of the '90s, especially, oh, wow. especially funk rock. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. The first Thank half you. of it really is a fire on the uh, funk rock tip. Um, well, I mean, yeah, coming from Detroit, um, I grew up on that, you know, uh, you know, I had the best of both worlds with Funkadelic and Iggy being here in the MC5 and like we used to rehearse actually enemy squad next to, uh, Rob Tyner's house was two doors from where we rehearsed. It's so funny story. And he would hear us down here making noise and shit. And, you know, John Sinclair is a friend of mine too. So like, but it's funny, you know, like I said, I, it's just growing up in Detroit. Uh, you kind of like that, man. You kind of like, you know, it's, you know, the best of, well, a lot of music here. You know, it's, it's a music mecca from Motown to uh, techno music now. And as well as, you know, like I said, uh, all the classic funk that's still here and, and starting to uh, come out. And, you know, groups like uh, uh, Tuxedo and Mayor Hawthorne and, you know, you know, a lot of new up and coming people too. Coco Butterfly, check her out. Another buddy of mine, he's, he puts all our Russian funk, uh, funk night records. Uh, check that out. The um, world on drugs. That's a, <laughs> yeah. a nice update of Miss Lucifer's love, right there. Oh, you caught that. See, and that was the thing. I was doing that kind of before 420. It was a parody. Um, you know, I had another band with Clip. Another factoid people don't know it was called. Uh, it was actually Clip and Stozo. And it was called uh, Psychedelic Bozo, which around 1990, in between Enemy, it was actually half of my band and half of uh, Clip's band. So I brought well, my keyboard player, Craig Schneider, who originally started Enemy Squad with me in 89. Uh, he was living in Hoboken, New Jersey, and he kind of was in a part of it. And uh, my guitar player, Kevin Hagen, who passed who was a, a founding member of Enemy Squad with me after the two original other members quit. Uh, like Kevin was notable because uh, he was roommates with John Fasanti, uh before he joined the Chili Peppers. So they were real good friends, actually. So we had that formula in Enemy Squad. Those songs like Chick Chick Jan, you hear? That's Kevin playing. He, he was a bad, badass motherfucker. He was like my Ron Vykowski. So it was like I had to have that because he could give feedback like that. And he, you know, he was crazy as hell man that dude was out of his mind but <laughs> but i loved him i remember turning he was a big kiss and um he get you know he was really heavy into the um you know the the the, the sub uh pop movement with you know the whole grunge thing in seattle uh he brought that to the band so uh you know my way of that was is is that i was trying to mix funk grunge and hip-hop that's what was my melting pot for Enemy Squad, basically. Yeah, yeah. So we got about another 20 minutes or so, Gabe. I want to uh, jump ahead. Uh, this was the next... This is the next one that I have. I'm not sure how uh, many you did in between, but... Uh, no, I haven't. Actually, that was that came out 10 years ago, 2010, actually. And uh, I'm working on a new one now. For It's been 10 years, so... Uh, yeah, that's it. Well, that's... 
another like that's that was me show showing you know my skills as a a, a musician a little bit and uh so to speak you know i'm not really a great musician i don't want to say that but i mean as you can hear you like some of the stuff on there it's me playing bass and keyboards on a lot of that stuff and a little rhythm guitar uh two of my favorite guitar players are on there uh tracy spacey t singleton who was like to me the straight up uh proto clone to uh eddie hazel but he's deeper than that actually i don't even want to say that because uh a lot of the sessions i did with him uh we got a lot of material we worked on actually it's almost two or three hours worth of stuff as well as michael hampton i've done uh, at least uh quite a bit of material with mike who's also on there and um but man, they're phenomenal, man. Like Spacey T, like I can say anything. Like I, when I produce a track with him, man, we could get like uh, five tracks in an hour. <laughs> I'm not even lying. Maybe two, but uh, it's like that. The chemistry flows, and, and like for that, uh, like one you hear on there, a whole lot of love. That was just the idea I had, because uh, I had that drum beat. Uh, of uh, good old funky music in, in my thing. We actually did that in his living room, the, the music, uh, out in, uh, in L.A. Uh, around the NAMM time uh, years ago, about a decade ago. And uh, it was actually longer than that. Wow, that picture, that's, oh, man, that's a baby picture of me. And uh, that picture of me is me sitting on the drum riser at Woodstock 99. The we, on the well, in the, in the previous installment, you talked so much about growing up, so it's good to see a picture from uh, back then. That's me, scary-looking little... That's me, uh, the undisco kid. Look, I was the undisco kid before I was the undisco <laughs> kid. See what I'm saying? So, yeah, that's that's it, man. Uh, that's a classic, man. You got the... Uh, I want to uh, do a, you know, reprint them. Uh, it was, you know, a lot of that stuff was limited edition and... Uh, a lot of my stuff is collectors because I don't do, I didn't do a lot of large, uh, you know, uh, prints and orders when I first got them made. But uh, I'm hoping to put a little anthology out and really re-release a lot of that stuff um, this year. I'm just trying to get a lot of my uh, my paperwork and business stuff together with my publishing finally and a lot of these loose ends I didn't tie up when I was younger, you know. It's, it's been an ongoing fight. I mean, and especially right now with everything we're dealing with, with this whole virus thing. Like I said, uh, I haven't been out really. I, I, I'm still out in the public. Um, I go to work every day. Uh, you know, my job, you know, I don't really want to get into all of that. But, yeah, I do work a job, and I actually go to work. I happen to be off today, thankfully. I need one day off to rest. So <laughs> this is my day off. But uh, Hey, I want, I, want, I want to ask you, Gabe, about um... – are you on the one? You got um, Sheila Horn, Sheila Brody, Amuka on there. All those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How'd that come together? Um, well, I've been knowing Sheila, you know, since the P Funk days uh, when we were out with George, and um, uh, we always did a lot of great stuff together. When we, uh, you know, could put our heads together and come up with something, um, she's super talented. Uh, uh, I I probably know her discography more than anybody else because uh, that's her on uh, a lot of that Gap Band stuff. Uh, a lot of people might not know, like Talking Back. And it's she's my favorite, on that. favorite one right and, there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I know a lot of stuff she she's done. And, um, 
she she we did I did a song for her record called um Turn the Light On on her solo record and uh that's another badass one. It was kind of me uh playing guitar and tucking away. I got like a Tyler Ross kind of feel. I'm more hard and dirty and gritty, you know, with my rhythm and that's really all I can give you is rhythm being a drummer. I can't I wish like a solo. If I could hear the things I hear in my head, it I would be you know like Jeff Lee Johnson or somebody, but but right now I can just I could just wish, you know. I always said I really wanted to learn to play, but you know at this point in the game I ain't even trip. As long as I got access to some great guitar players, I just rely on them, you know. So yeah. yeah. Um. So and we mentioned this earlier, but I just want to mention it again because this thing came together so well. Um, but this is one of your most recent projects. Right. Um, do you have anything else that we might hear soon, you think? or? Well, uh, yeah, we have a new Enema Squad, because, you know, uh, a lot of people don't know, in uh, 2010, I put the band back together. And when Gary Scheider died, uh, I kind of changed the name permanently to Enemy Squad, because we had a couple names over the years and because of legal stuff with the label uh i was dealing with uh i didn't want to have any problems so for a while we were uh the e-squad all-stars and tracy was in the band with me trailer he was in our band for a while with us when he was staying here in michigan and i wrote a lot of stuff for trailer and that's another thing he's on a lot of some stuff on that uh on disco kid record you got but um uh so we went after I changed the name and, and Gary passed. I wanted to pay tribute to him as well as when Boogie passed because uh, the song Enema Squad, just so people know the history now, and I'm gonna break it down for you. I mean, we were always Enemy Squad, but for some reason, I, I never really liked that name. Pedro Bell came up with that name for most people who don't know. But actually, I did. But what happened was, Pedro, I gave him a demo of our earlier stuff. And, you know, because he was a conceptualist. And he gave me a bunch of names. And he gave me these crazy names he wrote on this list. And I think one of them was Protoplasm Squad and Enemy something. So I kind of took Enemy and the squad and, and, you know. And I remember earlier on, I was a big fan of Public Enemy. And I really didn't think like that because to me it sounded totally different. But a lot of my friends were like, oh, man, it kind of sounds close to Public Enemy. And a lot of people associate that with Public Enemy. I didn't really think about it like that until later. But so in my mind, I always wanted to change the name. I never really liked it anyway. And quite as kept, I went through so many personnel changes. A lot of us became enemies, actually, which is weird. So it really was a enemy squad. So kind of like kind of like Public Enemy meets Urban Dance Squad. Well, this is funny. Uh, one of the first groups that uh, we we opened for was Urban Dance Squad when they first came to Detroit. So I know them. They're all friends of mine. Uh, cool guys, too. Uh, we opened up for a lot of people. Our our list is pretty extensive. I mean, we were opening for the Black Eyed Peas. We were opening for uh, Morris Day at a Time. We opened for uh, Fishbone. Uh, you know, Ernie Isley. So I think we pretty, that's a pretty hell of a track record. I mean, uh, and that was early in the early nineties. A lot, most of that stuff, uh, a lot later, um, <clears throat> you know, we got a lot more chance to do some things, but, um, so anyway, uh, the song promental shit back, watch psychosis enema squad. 
you know, is is pretty much U.S. the Funkadelic band uh, offshoot, but it was their unit. It was Tyrone Lampkin, uh, Gary, and Boogie, and you know, of course, Linda Scheider helped write some of that. You know, and that's the crazy song with all the crazy Frank Zappa metaphors. So anyway, I don't know. I had a weird vision one day, and it was just like. I'm going to just change the name because I got sick of that. And we were already affiliated as a P-Fuck offshoot band. So in my mind, to clear up all the bullshit, I was just like, I'm going to just call it Enema Squad. So people was always joking, call it that anyway, even though it was still Enemy Squad. And we even did some of us. So I officially did it 10 years ago, you know, after Gary passed. that we had a show. <clears throat> it was actually deemed the first night as Enema Squad. Uh, for the Gary Scheider benefit, which you can see on YouTube with a drum solo I did and I think a couple performances, one of Belita Woods' last performances. And she, Belita Woods also was an alumni member of Enemy Squad. She's also on a lot of them records. And, um, man, I miss Belita a lot. She was like... <laughs> so, like I said, that's pretty much where Enema Squad came from. And, you know, after 20 years, it's been 30 years for this for me. Like, I started this band in 1989 and after 20 years of being, like I said, the enemy and just got tired, I wanted to give it some new life, some new energy, a new vibe. So uh, so that's the thing. Even though it's a lot of the same members from Enemy Squad, it really is uh, newer, different different guys that I, I work with. And, uh, like, for one, uh, Law came into the fold, uh, which you know is he's a pretty popular, talented guy. He works with some of everybody. In, but he was with me first. I gave him his first shot, actually. And uh, when he came to 420's first show, which was when I met John Blackwell, uh, when he was with Cameo, because we opened for Cameo at Traps in New York, which is 420 Funk Mom's very first show ever. And uh, Law was there on the side with his little packet or whatever, bionic idiot or whatever he had going on. And uh, we clicked, you know, because I was younger. I was actually, when I was in P-Funk, I was the youngest member at the time. Nobody was younger than me other than Shonda, and she wasn't a member yet. So she was just there, you know, hanging out, helping Barb and doing merch or whatever. And then <clears throat> as she started, you know, rapping and coming more on stage more, you know. Uh, but when I got in the band, literally, I was the youngest guy, which is where the Undisco Kid moniker came from. Um, but actually, I had that when I was 17. But, um, <clears throat> you know, Enema Squad, we have some new stuff. I'm working on, and uh, it's just, man, you know, it's expensive nowadays. So uh, we went into United Sound in 2016. I flew Norwood in from L.A., from Fishbone, Norwood Fisher, who was a legendary, you know, producer and bass player, which we all know from, you know, working with Fishbone to his own group, uh, Trulio Disgracious. He co-produced uh, my latest single, which I don't know if you have, uh, which was available on digital download, Nothing For Free. And I featured Steve Boyd on, on the hook and vocals and myself on lead vocals and uh, Tyrone Lampkin's daughter on the background vocals and a few other P-Funk alumni. Uh, and Mark Bass mixed it, who did all the Eminem stuff. And uh, he also mixed a lot of the Shake the Gate uh, Funkadelic stuff. So Mark, uh, he he put his put his stamp on it. <clears throat> so, you know, that's it. Uh, we cut some, some stuff for the album. It's, uh, I'm still working on it. Uh, Mike Hampton wrote one of the tunes I, I got, and 
you know, a couple other people. Kevin Goins is also on the record. Uh, do you think? Uh, trying to, do you think when you're uh, done with it, you'll stick with just uh, digital this time, or are you still going to put out some uh, physical? I, um, I want to do vinyl. Actually, <clears throat> I've been talking with uh, this kid here, Jared Coyle from Jet Plastics. Um, as he was trying to put out the Medicaid fraud dog on vinyl for them, but uh, I don't know what happened, but uh, it still may happen. Who knows? But uh, he he's talking to me about reissuing and putting out a single I have. And I was actually trying to release a single uh, a month ago on my birthday, but timing-wise, it just didn't work out. And uh, uh, we have one, though. It's, it's called uh, What That Thing Smell Like, or That Thing, which features Norwood and Steve Boyd as well. And it's kind of my follow-up to uh, Erica Badu and her new perfume. So, <laughs> but, uh, have, you, you know, have, have you smelled that perfume? Man, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I'm you. like shit. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I met her actually earlier on. Her and uh, Andre three three thousand when they were together on the uh, Smoking Grooves tour when P Funk was on there, and they were real cool. You know, she was pregnant then with one of her kids, and and uh, you know, I just you know, I just always dug that they finally hooked up with P Funk and she had that little mothership line in her song about the mothership can't save you. You know what I'm saying? So. But yeah, man, I, I'm interested. Uh, I mean, hey, if you can sell out in 19 minutes, it must be something special. But I'm good. <laughs> All right, hey man, we we just got a few more minutes, but I want to talk a little bit about the DJ stuff. So, okay, um, in a in a in a nutshell, um, how how'd you get into that, and uh, what? How does it fulfill you? Why do you do it? Well, I think uh, just like my love and passion for drums, it's always been in my life. Um, like I was saying, uh, I was playing records for friends. A lot of my friends growing up uh, know me around the neighborhood. I was always carrying records around, even while my other kids was playing football and baseball, which I was good at sports, too. I played a little basketball, and, and I was really good at baseball. I probably would have been a professional baseball player had I not gotten into sports because I had a cousin who was actually a professional base player, um, I'm sorry, baseball player, uh, Ron LaFleur, which you may have heard of and they made a movie about him. So um, I really wanted to go that route, but, you know, uh, music just is, was always there. But uh, a lot of my friends DJ, um, like a lot of them, like that was like the, a hobby in Detroit for just like having, a, a, you know, collecting magazines or whatever like all my friends just uh dj'd a lot of them it just became a popular thing you know and uh i think i got serious about it um probably uh years ago um it was a party and the dj didn't show up and i remember i used to do it back in the day but like i said i always had i actually have a lot of like djs in, in enemy squad scratching with the band like that was a thing for me is that was my formula like they would do that so i had the best djs because you got to be a good dj to be able to cut with a band because playing with my timing you know i was always precise with and worried about would that work so uh having the best djs around me i always had access to dj equipment so one time uh, a dj didn't show up with his party and i ended up taking over and and rocking a party, which was like maybe 15 years or 20 years ago or something. And, um, you know, uh, 
I started making little mixes again of mixtapes, which I've always did that even early in the early days. I used to make them for George and people around and for Clip and little things I would put together and stuff. And um, edits. And uh, there's, a, there's a big popular record store uh, near my neighborhood, which uh, a lot of the famous DJs and producers uh, right now in Detroit, they worked at that. Uh, like Moody Man, which you may know about. He's a big one. He worked there and we were friends growing up. And, um, you know, uh, I just kind of like, it just rubbed off. And then uh, next thing I know, uh, about 15 years ago, I started working for a wedding company as a side hustle job. Um, and it was uh, basically, you know, people who wanted, who, you know, wanted entertainment for uh, their weddings. And it was a company uh, that we worked for that had several DJs and we all had our little gear we would have to go to the warehouse and get and would, you know our playlist for that whatever and you know specifically we would um cater to whatever the couples wanted you know their entrance song and whatever and most of those weddings were all the same it's crazy it's like you had a, a lot of people who were uptight and uh you know because you had the older elderly part of the family there and and you, you, did, you had the younger newer crowd so by the time the end of the night came a lot of people were drunk and partying and they wanted to hear uh baby got back and a lot of rap and hip-hop which uh, scared a lot of people's older folks and family who wasn't used to hearing rap and hip-hop like that and it was just it was fun but it was crazy it was like i could predict pretty much everyone they were all and i did hundreds of them they were all they were all ended up the same like every time it was like that did, did you did you know that, that i ran i ran a company like that in los angeles for 15 years you know I was wow. a disc jockey. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, called Musical Moods. Okay. So we well, did we did hundreds of so events. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. then. You know, you had your DJs and and everybody had to be there with their tux and mm -hmm. on point, and you get the you know you had to had the host to get them started. And yeah, I mean the father daughter dance, all that shit. Mm -hmm. So I was doing it, you know, <clears throat> and um, but I didn't want none of my other because you know in my life when I do a job, it's like my private life. That's my private life, you know. I don't want everybody really, you know, so, you know, my Gabe Gonzalez or Godzilla or whatever that is, that's that guy, you know, so, I mean, it's the same thing. Like, when I'm behind a drum set, I become that monster, that Godzilla, you know, I really do. It's, I can't, I don't know what that is. It's really weird. It may be the crowd or the adrenaline, but, um, you know, like this, I'm more introverted when I'm in my private chill time, you know what I'm saying? I'm really laid back and, and a shy, quiet dude sometimes, but... But yeah, so uh, I love it. I mean, music uh, has the power to heal people. And right now we need it more than ever. And, uh, you know, I've been doing my radio show, Godzilla Radio, yo. And y'all can check that out every Wednesday nights right now on uh, WPFR, P-Funk Radio. And, uh, you know, I uh, just had, uh, you know, P-Funk alumni Danny Bedrosian on the other night. And, uh, you know, every week I got a special guest uh, next week. Uh, I don't know when you're hearing this, but I don't know if they'll see it. But I got Prakash John coming on, a uh, rare uh, funkadelic bass player who's uh, definitely uh, in the obscure things. And I can't wait to pick his brain with some of my crazy questions. So, <laughs> but uh, and it'll, it'll be it'll be a few it'll, it'll be a few weeks before people see this. But uh, okay, but you okay. but you but you archive those right so they can hear. Yeah. Well. They're live. We live, you know, Wednesdays, every Wednesday. Oh, well, uh, 
lately with them being on WPFR, they're pre-recorded uh, with live phone conversations. But um, I was with the one station but right now because of the quarantine. You know, they closed down for till further notice. So, I, I, you know, we might be going back into the studio. But uh, like I said, I know I got Michael Hampton coming on in a few weeks, too. And uh, lots of other guests, uh, you know, I can't think of off right hand. But uh, it's going to be cool, man. It's just been a cool show. And so that's my like my way of finally after all these decades and years of just being able to play music I want for people. And, and it's a cool show because it's all genres. So a lot of people know me because of the P-Funk thing. It's a bad stigmatization as well. I, I don't get a lot of gigs because, because of it. Uh, a lot of people think that's all I can play is funk until they realize, wow, this I can play like jazz. You know, I can swing like Max Roach and, the best of them and because you know that's i, I gotta eat and survive I, I just was taught to to roll with the punches no matter what it is if i'm playing with a guy in the accordion in the park or 20 piece band like i was blessed to work with uh michael henderson uh year before last so that was pretty deep uh playing some of his stuff and uh wide receiver and geek you up and all those songs and, and the thing i just got lucky with that he just was in town and uh uh renting my rehearsal space in my studio to rehearse and the drummer couldn't make it and all his band they all read charts and again here's a, my downfall because of not reading but my field prevailed again and uh he liked it and uh i ended up doing the gig with them and being a drummer and me and michael got cool we even jammed a little bit of bitches brew for about 10 minutes so <laughs> that was pretty cool in my studio so hey you know i, I get blessed with some things like that you know Wow, that's that's nice. I'm hoping to have him on the show too. I'm going after him. Nice. Well, I can yeah. I'll make it happen for you. I know some <laughs> some cats. You know, I told you. You know, but man, I appreciate you having me on, Scott. It's definitely a ball talking to you, and I hope I didn't wear everybody out. It's just I've done a lot of wild stuff, and I just figured people might want to hear about some of it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing and being so open and great stories about music and about your life and. Uh, you know, how can everybody uh, best keep up with you, though? I'm on Instagram, Gabe Gonzalez, uh, lowercase, and um, one word, whatever. And uh, Facebook as well, my fan page on there. I think I'm at my limit. Uh, you know, it may vary. I keep it at a limit, but every couple of days, some people in front of me, which is cool, because <laughs> at least I can keep track of knowing when I can add new friends. I check every couple of days, but because, uh, you know, Facebook, I'm on there, or Gabe Gonzilla on Facebook is my fan page, and uh, Reverb Nation as well. Uh, I just found out today in my email, I got uh, some kind of notification saying I'm the popular, most popular local band or something, and I haven't been on there in ages, but uh, you can hear uh, some of my Disco Kid music on there that's not on that record and some other music that I put out under Disco Kid on Reverb Nation as well as Gabe Gonzalez on Reverb Nation and Enema Squad is also on Reverb Nation. So you can hear some of our music on that. And, um, you know, hit me up. Y'all send me something if you're looking for any work or or remixes or anything like that as well. Drum lessons, I do all of that as well. You know, hit me at Godzilla3D at gmail.com. There it is. Hey, man, appreciate you keeping the funk alive and uh, enjoy the, the show and enjoy talking to you. Oh, man, I, I got to do something, man, this quarantine thing. So, hey, <laughs> music it is right now. I can't do nothing. Music been with me all this time. And, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm, most, I'm by myself a lot anyway. So 
I don't mind it. Uh, you know, it's like almost like I've been preparing myself for this. It seems like so, <laughs> but uh, but stay safe, man. And I try to do the same. And uh, prayers to everybody out there too that's dealing with this or or lost somebody or loved one to this. Uh, it's definitely real. So make sure you take precautions and keep your hands clean and make sure you stay away from people. And hey, like they say. The longer uh, we stay out outside, the longer everybody got to stay in. So let's keep that in mind. Amen. Peace. Hey, back at Truth and Rhythm headquarters. Thank you for joining us on another magical ride with Truth and Rhythm. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, thank you so much for your continued interest and support. Be sure to subscribe. Go to YouTube. Go to the Funkin' Stuff channel. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives and breathes and thrives. Also, goodies here like TIR Quick Takes. And if you subscribe, you know what? You get the show before anyone else. It's free. If you love jazz, funk, R&B, soul, you can't miss it. Pass it along. Tell a friend. Tell family. This audience is growing, and it is a beautiful thing. All coming together for the love of this great music. Also, if you can throw us a buck or two, we could use the support financially, keeping the lights on, keeping the servers going, all these expenses. If you can help support the program, whatever you can give, much appreciated. Go to the FunkinStuff.net website. And on the right-hand side of every page, you just click and you can donate through PayPal, credit card, whatever. Very easy to do and so much appreciated. And if you do a sizable donation, I will mention you on the program. Also, drop me a line. Email me at scottg at funkinstuff.net. Let me know who else you'd like to see on the show, what you enjoy about the music. Let's just kibitz and uh, talk about stuff, you know, talk music. You'll find that I respond very quickly, and I much enjoy the uh, rapport and the camaraderie and the interaction. Always remember, this is your show, The True Music Lover. So for now, that's all the time we have for this one. It's a wrap. As always, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. <laughs>